0: What is the best way to live our lives in, in light of everything that God has done for us in Christ? In, in light of the love that He shows us, what is the best way for us to live our lives? I think for some people, the the answer is we should uh, we should straighten up and fly right. That the the proper response in light of everything that God has done for us is for us to to keep our nose clean. We we um we should uh make sure we don't mess up in the future. When I was doing prison ministry, uh, I would sometimes get sent to e-block. e-block was where people got sent if they were a disciplinary, if they had disciplinary problems in their regular um, cell block, but also it's where people came back, uh, to the prison if they had been on parole and then they got caught for a parole violation, then they would get sent back to the prison, but they would get sent to e-block to kind of start all over again. And I think sometimes people see us as is, that's the way we should, we should live our lives. We should make sure not to mess up anymore in the future. We should, we should keep our nose clean. We should fly straight and narrow. We, we should fly straight, straighten up and fly, fly right. We should, uh, stay on this, uh, the straight and narrow. That these are things we should do because, because that's the, that, that's only proper in light of everything that God has done for us. Other people have a completely opposite view. They say, they say no, that We have a get out of jail card, so we can do whatever we want. Uh, The the you know because of what Jesus has done for us, we can we can live our lives however we want because God has promised that we're forgiven. And the only question, the the only real debate about this this picture is. When do we play the card? Because some people say you can only play it once and, and it only works backwards. So you should wait until the last possible moment to play that card. And, you know, on your deathbed, you say, you know, forgive me for all my sins and then God is obligated to, to forgive you. So that's a different model. And depending on the circumstances of your death, that may be uh, tricky to arrange. But ba- basically that's the idea is that, is that I have this get out of jail card and I can play it whenever I want to. So, so these are two models. Of how we should live our life um, in 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 light of the fact that the, that that Jesus has come to save us, and in light of all the things that God has done to show His love for us, I, I want to talk about a third. There may be there may be others, but I want to talk about a third one uh, today, which is um, the one we're going to see in our reading. And the reason I want to look at this one is because the person in, in our reading today, Jesus commends what they do. So, you know, anytime Jesus says that's, that's a good thing to do, then we should pay attention. But the other reason is because it it enables us to reflect on the relationship between between how we live our lives and, and what God does um, in the world. So it, it enables us to see how what we do connects with everything that God is doing. So um, we are... Looking at chapter twelve of John's biography uh, of Jesus, um, and this is the the last Sunday in the the season of Lent, and it has a particular name that comes from our reading today. Uh, this this is the the beginning of Holy Week, and and a week from today is Easter, and uh, so so this last Sunday in Lent has has a name which is Palm Sunday, and it gets its name from our reading. Uh, where John tells us that um, people used palm branches to do something, and and um, it's interesting. Only John mentions palm branches. Some of the other uh, biographies of Jesus uh, talk about branches, but only palms. Uh, only John says they're palm branches, and. Um, That that is one of the the many ways that these passages are different. All four of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament mention the thing that occurs today, the thing we remember at Palm Sunday, um, which is this a uh, uh, ceremonial entrance that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. And so it talks they, they all talk about them in different ways, that they, they talk about this event in different ways, but they have different emphases. And so they talk about it uh focusing on different aspects of what it was Jesus did. And one of the many ways that John's is a little bit different is it talks about the palm branches. So that's where it gets its name Palm Sunday. But three of the four biographies including John's uh Talk about something else. So they put it in the close, close, um, context of, of the, this, this, uh, a big entrance that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. And that is this anointing that takes place, um, in Bethany, which is a village just outside of, which is just outside of, uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, the, The, uh, the, the passage we're gonna look at today is one of the, one of those three. And, uh, what we're gonna see is that, uh, like everything else, it's slightly different from the other, the other passages, but it also focus, it has a different focus. The reason that, that John writes, uh, the, the biography he did is because he has different theological concerns that he wants to talk about than the other writers did in their own biography. So, so one of the things that John is interested to do is to tell us why, or, or make sure we remember what he's already told us about why Jesus would be uh, arrested and crucified later in the week. And so we see that right up at the very beginning of chapter twelve, verse one, he says, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead." Jesus has been essentially hiding out. He uh, in the, at the end of chapter eleven, we read that he no longer. Uh, uh, had a public ministry in Jerusalem, and he was he was in a place called uh, um, uh, Ephraim with his disciples. But he came back. He came back to Jerusalem, um, even though people were were looking for him. People were angry at him because he had. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. So he tells us, um, the home of Lazarus, and in case we've already forgotten, it's all, it's been, you know, 20 verses or something. In case we've forgotten what he just told us about Lazarus, he says, Lazarus is the one that he raised from the dead. He's reminding us that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that was the, the, uh, the final straw for the temple establishment that they could have put up with some of the things Jesus did perhaps, but this was the end. And so the high priest has said that, um, that Jesus should die so that the whole nation could be, um, should be preserved. So, so uh, he's reminding us of that, of that backstory as we begin this. And in fact, he reminds us a couple more times in chapter nine, he says, uh, many Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, and then he says it again in um, in verse seventeen. He says, "The crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were testifying about him." John wants to be particularly clear that we remember this is Jesus, and the reason he's in town, or the the reason for everything that's going to happen from this point forward, while he's in town, is because he raised Lazarus from the dead. So, with that setting, that is that is a. a, a theological concern that John wants us to be um, thinking about. He then tells us what happened when he got to Bethany, this, this village outside of uh, Jerusalem. He says, Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's uh, biography of Jesus, w- you you may not be surprised that Martha is serving. That, that's something we, we, we have seen before and the the good news is now she doesn't seem to be as as um as overwhelmed by the work as she was in that earlier occasion that Luke tells us about where she got upset with jesus and and asked him to help her with uh or have mary help and and um she seems to be taking things in a better situation now uh, a better place uh but John isn't really focused on Martha or Lazarus for that matter John is focused on Mary and he says about Mary that um that uh that the what what he tells us about Mary is is an answer to the question about how we should live our lives that what Mary does is not living like a parolee who's trying to keep her nose clean and and it's not like somebody who is doing anything she wants confident that she can get out of jail free she she shows us a different way to live her life and so what does she do so verse 3 then Mary took an extraordinary amount almost three quarters of a pound, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it and then wiped her feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. So that's what Mary does. Mary does this thing with, with, um, the perfume and Jesus' feet. Now, for us to understand the, 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 what all Mary is doing in this one verse, we need to understand culturally, this would have been a a, a very, uh, it would have been shocking. It would have been scandalous what Mary did. And, and, and for reasons that may not be obvious to us, the first one is that women in that culture simply did not take their hair down, that, that there was something that happened in the privacy of their bedroom and nowhere else, that, nowhere else did people see women with their hair down. Um, so, so, for her to let her hair down in a in a in a mixed company like this would have been very surprising, very actually shocking. And in some places of the world, it would still be it would still be surprising today. Uh, but even even in North America, even in our you know our uh, very lax uh, uh, society, this would have been uh, pretty pretty awkward. Um, and you, you might think in, in that culture it would be even more so, and maybe. The the closest analog we could come up with would be if somebody came to a church function dressed in a in a very skimpy bikini or something like that 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 would be equally scandalous and it, uh, so it's not just awkward to let your hair down um, the way she does but it would actually be scandalous and that's that's the first way that what Mary does is is uh, surprising or scandalous in this context but the other thing is the the amount of, of, uh, extravagance she shows, the, the degree of extravagance she shows by, um, by doing this. Uh, John is at pains to show us this, and it's a good thing because for us, you know, perfume is expensive, but people still have it. It's not unobtainable. And, and so we don't appreciate just how difficult it would have been in that, in that culture to have this perfume. For us, you know, even if the ingredients in a perfume are, are exotic and have to come from far away, you know we have we have jets and we have boats and we can we can ship things pretty safely and, and at pretty reasonable cost. That wouldn't have been the case in the first century. So this this um, perfume we are told is an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. So so you hear that. So an extraordinary very expensive, made of pure nard. Pure nard, this is the real deal. This is this is the genuine article. It's like if you go to the grocery store and you see there's, there's a bottle of extra virgin imported olive oil there, and that's as opposed to partly hydrogenated soybean oil, you know, the cheap stuff. This is the real deal. This is pure nard, so it's made out of genuine nard. And then he says, it's an extraordinary amount, almost three-quarters of a pound. So three-quarters of a pound, that's about a third of a of a kilogram. And oil, this is an oil-based perfume. It's actually lighter than water. You know, if you've seen water floating on, or oil floating on water, it's the same thing here. It's actually lighter. So it comes out, it works out to about uh, almost a pint of this oily perfume, or about half a liter. So um, I was trying to figure out how much is that. Well, this is... This is ten ounces. This is about two thirds as much as as uh, Mary used, and um, and who would ever put this much perfume on somebody? You know, if you think about this, um, it's 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 meant to be used like a lotion. You put a little a little drop or two, and then you know you you rub it in. You know, this is what they would do with this perfume, and Mary just drenches Jesus with this. Great amount. I mean, imagine imagine this and then half of another one. That's how much um, perfume she puts on on Jesus. And uh, John, John says uh, that, that she then wiped his feet dry with her hair. Well, you can imagine it's all over the place and she's trying to, to dab it up. And it says, the house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. Imagine that. This is a, a, scented, a scented perfume that's designed to be used in small doses, and, and now there's a pint of it. There's half a liter of this perfume. Of course the house is filled with the, the scent of the, the, um, the perfume. So it is this extravagance, even more than Mary's hair, that the disciples remark on. Um, and and we, we see that in verse 4, we read, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, complained. This perfume was worth a year's wages. He's not he's not interested in Mary letting her hair down. He's interested in just how expensive this, this perfume is. And we know from uh, the other two biographies that mention this incident, Matthew and, and Mark, also talk about how the disciples, they, they say there were other disciples, not just um uh, not just, uh, Judas, who comment on the expense, this extravagance that has taken place. Uh, but, but John, I think, is particularly offended that, that it is Judas who, who leads off in the complaining because, because Judas is a thief. He says he, J- Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would take what was in it. And I think that's what particularly offends John about this. So, so the, the, the disciples are all, um, as surprised as they would be by Mary letting her hair down, they're even more surprised by this extravagance. And uh, it is this that Jesus remarks on, that Jesus doesn't comment on on her hair. Jesus comments on the extravagance. So what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus uh, says uh, in verse 7, he says, Then Jesus said, Leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial, and this is how she has used it. So Jesus says, let, let her alone. And, and for some, for some people listening today, that may be why you're listening. That God wants you to hear that message. That whatever other people have told you, um, what, whatever your parents or your friends, whatever your employers have said about, about your behavior in the past, you need to hear Jesus say, let her alone. Let him alone. This, Jesus is saying that, that there is nobody else who is in a position where they can judge people except him. Jesus says, you let her alone, that this is not your matter to judge. And um, uh, he says that there's nobody else who's competent to judge. There's nobody else who's in a position to judge. And earlier in John's gospel, he said, God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, I'm not judging people, and I'm the only one who's in a position to judge. And so let Mary alone. But he goes on. He says, "This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial, and this is how she's used it." So, um, I don't know if Mary knew that. I don't know if this had been prearranged. You know, Mary, give me some perfume because I'm going to die, and and you know, then you can you can um, uh, anoint my body. I don't know if that has been prearranged. My guess is not. Um, John tells us later on in this passage. He says his disciples didn't understand these things at first. After he was glorified. They remembered these things had been written about him, and that they had done these things to him. So, so he's talking about how that, that there was this mystery about Jesus that a lot of things didn't didn't make any sense with his disciples until after Jesus had died and been buried, and then was resurrected on Easter Sunday. So, so this might have been one of them. Maybe Mary understood the implications of what she was doing. Maybe not. But, but in any event, whether whether that's true or not, what Jesus then commends her for is not for. The um, uh, for anointing him, but for her timing. That what Jesus says is this: He says, um, "This is how she's used it." And then verse eight: "You will also you will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me." Jesus says, "Mary's timing is impeccable. Maybe she just intuited that this was the right time. Maybe maybe that they had previously arranged that this would be the the for her, for his burial, but." Um, uh, Uh, he says her timing is right. That, that, um, the poor will always be with you. Uh, that, that since, since the, the book of Deuteronomy, which tells us that the poor will always be with you, therefore you must take care of them. It says, it says that God's people have always had an obligation to look after the poor. And that's the truth. That, that there's no, a uh, political party you can vote for, there's no social program that you can get behind that is going to eliminate the problem of poverty. Those may be tools that you can use to alleviate the the the, the suffering associated with poverty, uh, but you're never going to be rid of it. And if you don't like that idea, well you know take it up with Jesus because Jesus says you will always have the poor with you. But Jesus says you will not always have me. That that Mary realized that this might be the last opportunity she has to anoint Jesus's feet that that there may never be another opportunity for her to do this and so she seizes it mary acts on the opportunity when it presents itself and that's the part that jesus commends so the answer to our question the, the big question is what should you do when when uh, in light of everything that jesus has done uh, what should you do you should act like Mary. You should throw caution to the wind. You should seize the opportunity when it's in front of you. You should take the opportunity when it presents itself. This is what Mary does. And it could be that there were other solutions, that there might have been other solutions, that if you had time and could think it all through and maybe batted it around with some other people, you'd come up with some different ideas. Maybe you'd come up with a solution that... that. Wasn't so extravagant that maybe there could have been some kind of a solution where uh, some of the money could have been spent on the poor and and yet at the same time anoint Jesus' body for his for his um, uh, funeral. Maybe there was another solution like that. Maybe there was a solution that would have allowed Mary to act a little more dignified and not let her hair down in public the way she did. There might have been all kinds of solutions. You know, there 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 maybe was some other solution. Maybe, 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 maybe. maybe. Who knows? What Jesus says is she saw the opportunity, she threw caution to the wind, and she acted. And that's the lesson for us as well. You know, think about this in your own life. What what sort of uh, uh, questions are you facing? What 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 sort of things are? are you trying to figure out that there's just that there's a lot of complexity you're analyzing it maybe you've got analysis paralysis maybe you've got decision fatigue because this is the the latest in a series of decisions and and you you don't know what the right thing to do is um because because you're, you you've made a problem so big that that it's no longer clear what the right solution is jesus is is inviting us as we as we listen to the story about Mary, Jesus is inviting us to consider: How about just the smallest thing? What is the what is the next right thing? Forget what the grand right thing is to do. Forget what the what the best, most optimal uh, uh, right thing to do is out of all the possible solutions. But what is what is the one that presents itself? What is the next right thing to do? What would it be like if we did that in our own life? What would it be like if we actually just said, "You know what"? There's probably a better solution out there, but you know what? This, this one looks like it will work, and I'm going to do that. What if, what if we did that? And, and we just trusted Jesus that, you know, some people are going to say, but yeah, what, what you're doing is undignified. Or they're, they're going to say, you know what? What you're doing is too extravagant. You need to dial it back a little bit. And and we just trusted Jesus and said, you know, Jesus will understand. If I'm wrong, Jesus will understand. And, Not only that, Jesus will fix it. If, if, if I've, if I've guessed wrong, if I've, if I've misunderstood the situation and there's actually a better solution out there, then how about if we just trusted that Jesus could, could help us arrive at that solution over time? That Jesus could fix what we, what we did so that it actually aligns with that better solution that's out there. That's a question for us to ask. Not should we act like parolees or should we, should we Um, just do whatever we want without any, any concern about whether it, whether it's a good idea or not. But to say, in light of everything that God has done for me, what is the next right thing I can do? What is, what is the, the, the thing that presents itself and not be obsessed with is this the, the provably best thing that could possibly be done? But is it, is it good? Is it a good thing? Can I do this one right thing? John's biography has long been, uh, considered to be more, um, reflective or to invite more reflection than the other three biographies of Jesus. That, that oftentimes as we're reading John's biography, we have the sense that, that maybe John, as he wrote this, chuckled to himself and he said, let them chew on that for a while. And, and the truth is, we've been chewing on John's Biography for two thousand years. There's there's um, depths to John's Gospel that, that we may never see this side of eternity, and uh, and and I wonder as I think about this passage, I, I I wonder something and and you know this is free. This is not in the Bible. This is just you know what's in my head. But but this is the way I was reflecting on this. I was thinking to myself. What if Jesus is lying there? You know, in, in those days, that, that these banquets, they would they would lie down on their left uh, on their left arm with their feet out, so they're kind of arranged in a in a pattern around a table, and they would eat with their right hand. Jesus is lying there. Mary's uh, anointing his feet, and Jesus is looking at his other disciples, and he's going, "These guys are missing something important here. They're they're worried about her hair being down, or they're they're absolutely freaking out about." the expense of the the perfume she's using but they're missing the kind thing she's doing you know they're just kind of filing it away they're just saying well you know uh, taking care of people's feet taking care of Jesus's feet that's servant's work and if there aren't any servants at hand well a woman will do and since mary's uh, since martha's in the kitchen i guess mary it's it's up to mary to do it and and what if jesus is looking at them and thinking that's where they're coming from and he says to himself I've got a great idea that will make sure they never see people's feet the same way ever again. Because in the very next chapter, the first thing Jesus does is it says, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And I just wonder, what if Jesus got the idea from Mary? He said, I want to make sure people realize just how important what she did was. Now, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be Jesus. I have no idea what it's like to be Jesus. Maybe he planned from all eternity to, you know, in, in the 13th chapter of John's biography, he was going to wash his disciples' feet. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But what if he was improvising? What if Jesus was was looking at the situation and saying, I've got a great idea? You know, what if... When we think about what God wants us to do with our lives, instead of saying, you know, there is some, there is some perfect solution out there if I can only find it, and in the meantime I'm not going to do anything. What if instead of thinking about God's will for our lives wasn't to, to come up with the perfect solution, but to simply be creative, to do something that, that works for us, that makes sense, and then He would improvise based on that, that, that He would bend the, the, the course of the universe around the things we did? What if we thought about God not as as a parole officer that we have to obey, or somebody who will eventually take our get-out-of-jail card no matter what we've done in the meantime, but what if we think about God as the greatest jazz musician ever, and he's sitting in with us, and He's waiting to hear what we play and then he's going to do something. He's going to improvise something that is absolutely amazing based on what he heard us playing. What if, what if that's what's going on here? That Jesus sees Mary anoint his feet and he says, I've got a great idea. Now, I don't know. I don't know. But think about it. John invites us to think about these things, to, to really reflect on, on what it is that Jesus is doing. So, we're not parolees. Paul said that it was for freedom that Christ set us free, that that he wants us to have freedom. But we can think about what we can do with that freedom. Should we simply just run wild and trust that our get-out-of-jail-free will mop up all the damage we do in the meantime, all the pain we cause, all the, the, the difficulties we cause in our own lives and the lives of people around us? I mean, we could do that. But what if instead we said, I want to do the next right thing. I'm not going to get all, you know, wrapped around the axle trying to figure out what is the best possible thing. I'm going to say, this is right to the extent that I have any ability to see what's right, and I'm going to do this thing. What if we throw caution to the wind? What if we act like Mary? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson, the, the lesson of Palm Sunday when, when, um, Even before Jesus came into town, when he was still in the the village of Bethany, he was anointed for his burial. Help us to to appreciate the sacrifice that he made for us, but help us also to see the things that he did for the people that he was traveling with, the people uh, among his party of disciples. Help us to remember the lesson that he taught through Mary about doing the right thing, Help us, Lord, to do the right thing, to throw our caution to the wind. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.